Please open in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. I am going to take a detour from Luke this week to talk about church life, the reason for small groups. Let's pray. Father, as I had just prayed a few minutes ago, allow your Holy Spirit to rest upon us, to give us internal ears along with our external ears to hear the Word, to be encouraged, for Him to work upon our hearts that we place our hope in Your promises. All of those promises that have been purchased and guaranteed by the cross of Your Son, our great Savior. And to that end, let me represent accurately this text to the glory of Your name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, I'll be reading verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What we have in this text are two commands. They're distinct, but they are intricately related to each other. And they're meant to be the core purpose of our lives. The first command is that we're called to go vertical. You and God. Hope in God. His promises. Then we are called to go horizontal toward other sinners and to overflow in encouraging them to love and good deeds. The core of biblical Christianity demands relationships. It demands body life. Notice First, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. That's the first command in the text. This is the vertical command. This vertical disposition of our minds and of our hearts, of banking our hope on God's promises. Not on this world. Not on worldliness. Not on a husband or a wife or children or a job. Banking our hope on God's promises. To become a Christian and then to be allowed to live longer on this earth before you die, it means your life is a test. And it can get hard. And that test demands that we actively obey this text. That we consciously purpose to hold on hope. It's like every day, some days feels like, I love this. This is awesome. No problem. I got this pull. Just picture up. 
flagpole. And you're holding it, no problem. But sometimes hurricane winds come up. And like a flag, your feet are off the ground and you're flapping, holding on. And this text says, hold fast to that pull, to that confession of your hope. Hold fast means firm, tightly. Now, in this book of Hebrews, they're predominantly Jewish Christians, and they, many of them, have been wavering in their confidence in Christ. And that's why up to this point in chapter 10, those of you who know this letter to the Hebrews, the writer has been hammering home who Jesus is. His person. He's the high priest. He's the fulfillment of the shadows of the Old Testament sacrifices. He came. He gave up Himself. He has made the way for sinners to come to God. Okay, so in other words, He's placarded Christ. And the point is this. They, like all of us today, constantly need to contemplate the contents of the Gospel. Why? so that our confidence, their confidence in Christ will grow strong. And so the writer now says, hold firm, tightly to, hold fast to something. But you cannot hold fast if you do not know what it is you're meant to hold fast to. Are you holding fast to your hope? Yeah, I got great hope. What's your hope in? I don't know, but I just got hope. It doesn't work. You have to know your hope. Hold fast to the hope. The hope that is Christ. Hope here for the Hebrew writer, he doesn't mean something different than saving faith. He, he, he focuses on the future aspect of saving faith. Saving faith has a past aspect. 2,000 years ago, Jesus went to a cross and He rose from the dead. That's past. And there's a present aspect. The, the hope here isn't like, I just hope so. Oh no, it's firm. It, it is this, this faith, this trust in the future promises that have not come to about yet. Like Jesus' second coming, the resurrection of your body, eternal joy without sin that He has laid up for you and purchased for you. They are the future promises. He says, hold fast. In other words, hope sees the sufficiency of Christ and that on the cross He is assured all of these promises, they will come to pass. And hope is that thing that anchors our affections, our desires, those things that move us and motivate. It, it anchors like a ship. You let down the big, huge anchor on the chain and hopefully find a rock. Hope goes down deep to anchor itself. It is fixed on the person and on the work of Jesus Christ. The Hebrew writer said it this way a few paragraphs earlier in chapter 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We have what is an anchor of the soul? Here he goes. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies with God. Biblical hope anchors us through the darkest times of life and storms in the sea. Now notice in the text, we're told to hold fast. That's the command. That's the verb. Hold fast to what? Answer, hold fast to the confession of our 
Oh, the confession here refers to that public agreement with the gospel. Yes, I'm, I'm expressing something that I see and have gravitated toward with my heart in the telling of the story of Jesus and the promises of forgiveness and justification and future glorification. And then it says, I'm in. What do I do? You get baptized. And that baptism is a public confession. I am identifying with Jesus' body on earth. The church. It's that hope that moves to that confession of the hope. Earlier on in the letter to the Hebrews, the writer made it clear that it is That hope, you see it in that person and that person, we can confirm them. They're one of us. That hope is evidenced by they're holding tight day after day to it. In chapter 3, verse 14, he said it this way. For we, and this is a perfect tense in the Greek, it means it's a past thing that has ongoing present day, future ramifications to it. It's true. We do share in Christ. Wow. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This Hope in Christ, in the Gospel, is what is confessed. It's the declaration of a person's heart embracing the Gospel of Jesus. The way Paul put it in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Because with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And it comes about in the life of us sinners by I'm going public with my baptism. And I'm going to live out my baptism as one who's been raised from the dead throughout my life by holding fast to my original confession. The anchor for hope now in this text is found in the second clause of verse 23. Okay, you got the anchor. Hope is an anchor. What's it anchoring in? What's the rock? For He who promised is faithful. That's the rock that the anchor grabs onto. It's not a hope without reason. It's not a foolish hope because it's hope in the faithfulness of God's promises. Understanding, knowing the Bible's promises is foundational to Christian hope. Those promises are the new covenant. Christ came to purchase that was prophesied under the old covenant. Forgiveness of sins is freely offered in Jesus. Wiped away because He came to bear that penalty from God against sinners. Justification. Not only the wiping away of your sins, but the positive human righteousness of Jesus from Nazareth put to your account. You're in. Sanctification is a promise. He will work on you. He will bring storms and cause you to hold tight and grow you in holiness. And in the end, there's future glorification. Those whom He's predestined, He's called. Those whom He's called, He's justified. Those whom He has justified, He's glorified. Well, not yet. He will. These are the promises. But you have to know those promises in order to place your hope in them. It's the hope that speaks like this 
at the end of the Christian life. That's how Paul did it shortly before his death. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to Him. In our text, verse 23 is a heart issue. Embrace the hope of the Gospel. Hold it tight. In other words, let the promises of God in the Bible live in you so that the main affections of your life are produced by the hope that is laid up in Holy Scripture. Okay, that's the first command. Vertical. Go vertical with God for your soul's sake. Hold tight. And now, as we go on in the text, that vertical saving faith, hoping God, is not meant to stop there. It's not meant to stop with you. God did not create you and then recreate you in Jesus Christ so that you would place your hope in Him and then nothing else. It's not what He bought you for. He called you to hope in God and then make that hope visible by numerous effects that it has on your life. That's all over the Bible. Now, in this text, the effect that he's talking about, one of them, is given in verse 24. So remember, verse 23 summed up, hoping God, vertical. Verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's your calling. It may not be your only calling, but this is a central calling to all believers. Look at the text again. Notice it doesn't say, consider how you may love each other and do good works doesn't say that. That's biblical. We find that elsewhere. But that's not what this text says. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. She's saying, hoping God in your alone time. And then, come together and focus on helping others become more loving and doing loving works to others. In the original, the Greek says, here's the second command, let us consider. That's the activity. You've got to ponder. He says, consider and ponder something. Now, what's the object of consider? It's hard to see in most English translations. But in the Greek, the object of let us consider is one another. Consider one another. Other, real, concrete, flawed persons. Consider here is the same word that this writer used back in chapter 3, verse 1. Consider Jesus, the Apostle and the High Priest of our confession. So, so there, what does He mean? He means you are to consider, you are to ponder Jesus. Look at Him in the Scriptures. Think about Him. Focus on Him. Study Him. Okay. And now He says, so also, consider one another in the church. 
Verse 24 is saying, consider one another, study that person. Think hard about that one. Get into the life of the other. And ponder how you may encourage and help them love better. Do good works. Verse 24 demands that as Christians, we focus on building relationships with each other in the body of Christ. No wonder we need to draw near to God, which he says back in verse 22. And we need to place our hope and hold on to that hope. No wonder he says, hoping God... Because relationships means you're opening yourself up to frustration and pain. He doesn't say, find two or three people that are exact kind of personalities as you are so you're comfortable. He just says, one another in a local church. The more we open up to be known and to get to know another, the more vulnerable we are to being hurt. And the natural response is to run. I mean, it's anyone in touch with their brokenness knows this by experience. Some of you know this story. I remember years ago a lady who started to come to church but was really afraid and asked us in a a group, I'm just so afraid that if I kind of get known or become more of a part, I'm going to get hurt. And I've been hurt before. I don't want to be hurt. Can you promise me not to hurt me? My answer was no. I promise you, if you stick around long enough, you will be hurt. Let me just say, and God in His sovereign, sanctifying providence will ordain that you be hurt and teach you how to forgive and teach you how not to be so hurt when it's your fault for being hurt when no one did anything wrong to you. And then on the flip side, people will do stuff wrong to you and then You will have to forgive them. He's working these things out in our lives. To be vulnerable means to be open to pain. And that's what we are called to. Now, on the flip side, if you ever have these Words come into your mind. You don't have anything to offer anybody else in the body. Those thoughts don't stand up to Scripture. They don't stand up to verses 23 and 24. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because... He who promised is faithful. And let us all consider one another. How to stir up one another to love and good works. He just said, look outside of yourself. Consider. Study. Think about other people for the purpose of stirring them up. Now, the writer in this text explains what we are aiming at in all of our considering of the other person. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, the NIV translates that this way. Consider how to spur one another on. The New American Standard 
how to stimulate one another. And the King James, very literal and good translation says, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. So this word in the ESV, stir up, it's the word that was usually used in a negative sense of provoking others, irritating others, inciting others. The author of Hebrews, he wants to grab their attention. Rather than provoking others to anger, some of us are good at that, me, he says, think about how you can provoke others to love and good works. That's our calling as members of the body of Christ. Now those one another's, you know, this is what it means. <laughs> it gets messy because relationships by definition are relative. Ponder, consider, seek to understand this person as opposed to that person. What are they like? They might not be like me or like them. What's their situation? What would help? I've got I to gotta study them to know how can I help them hold fast to Christ and provoke them to do loving deeds. How can I do that? They're just not a cookie cutter. They're persons with brokenness. Different family of origins. Different ways of viewing the world. Better than you or worse than you? Right or wrong? This is referring here in this text to the daily life of the church. To church life. And church life is not merely attending a Sunday morning public service with singing and praying and preaching. This text here does not happen in that context. Now look, look at verse 25 now. The author now goes on to tell us how to go about our calling as Christians. So no, verse 23 was a command, verse 24 was a command. First one, essentially, place your hope. Hold fast your confession of hope. Do this vertical. 24, second command. And consider one another. How you can provoke them to love and good work. Two commands. Now, verse 25 is not another command. In the Greek, it's two participles. And what the writer is doing now in verse 25, he's saying, here's the way to go about accomplishing verse 24. So let's look at it. Verse 24 gives the goal. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Verse 25 now gives the how. How? By not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So two things, he says. Don't neglect getting together. Secondly, get together in order to encourage each other. Now, this not neglecting refers to more than sitting in a chair on Sunday morning. Don't get me wrong. What's happening right now, what should be happening in the life of all churches? Singing, praying, 
expository preaching of the Bible is a grace of God that is an ongoing means of sanctification and salvation in people's lives, in the life of the church. I mean, it's crucial for the first commandment. Sunday mornings. And other Bible classes too. Hoping God know His Word in your reading and hearing it preached and proclaimed. Central. But, in this text that we're looking at, this coming together that we are not to neglect is in a context where the members encourage one another. That's not happening right now at this moment. And don't let it happen right now, please. Because it's not for this moment. Sunday morning while pastor is preaching. But that, that's not happening here right now. It's not meant to happen in a classroom. There's times for classrooms like tomorrow night. I believe in classrooms. I taught in Bible college for four years. They're important, but it doesn't happen there. It happens over dinner or lunch or the donut table after church. And it happens especially when churches organize to have smaller groups that are conducive to obeying this text. Now evidently, these Hebrew Jewish Christians that the writer's writing to, many of them were slowly but surely getting into the habit of not coming together in church meetings. You know how you do a habit? Just skip a night of flossing your teeth. Okay, you get back. But if you skip two, if you get three, you're getting closer to what's, I think the number psychologists say is seven. You go seven nights without flossing your teeth, you might not floss for months. And note, when he's writing this, the church in the first century clearly met more often than our churches today in the 21st century America. In Acts, they met from house to house on a daily basis. When Paul's in Ephesus, he's teaching daily. And churches are broke up in homes. They didn't have church buildings as they're meeting in groups. But even in that context, back then, the author rebukes them for forsaking the gatherings. And that word there in the ESV, not neglecting, the word neglecting, the New American Standard Bible translates it, not forsaking. See, the Greek word here means to leave in the lurch, to abandon, to desert. It's a very strong word. It's the same word Jesus used from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? Abandoned. Me. This is a sobering exhortation. He says, don't desert the body. Remember how Paul said it? 1 Corinthians 12. Don't say, I have no need of you. Or, or you have no need of me. In other words, don't forsake or abandon the body with, well, I don't feel I need much help. I'm doing pretty good. Then you totally have missed this text. Let's say it's true. You're doing fantastic. Every morning you have an hour and a half of quiet time with the Lord and in your Bible. 
And throughout the day, you load up with good, expository sermons from the internet, from your favorite preachers. And you're feeding your soul. And all that is good. The more you can do that, the better. Let's just say, you're on top of the world. Okay, this text says, you who are on the top of the world with Jesus, here it is. He says to you, consider others. How you may bless them. How you may help them love and do good deeds. And He says, here's how you do it. By not forsaking them when it's time to meet. This is one reason why here and in thousands of churches we do stuff like home groups on purpose, small groups or cell groups, whatever people want to call those. Because if you've got a church of 500, not conducive, you're probably going to want about 40 of these so people can Get in smaller groups and obey Bible. Do stuff. Like he says here, encouraging one another. You can't do that if you've got 500 people in one room. It doesn't work. Okay. It is in those types of groups, whether you do it what you ought and every believer ought in unofficial capacities, let's go eat, you talk, you hang out, and then the churches try to develop Official capacities for people to operate this way, to, to do this. Let us hold fast the confidence of our hope without wavering because He who promised is faithful and let us consider one another how to stir up one another to love and good works by not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but instead encouraging one another. See, this is why at this church, it's my desire when we have home groups, that they not be another place with a talking head teaching Bible study. That's purposeful here. I believe in Bible study. I believe in Bible teaching. I believe in exegesis. I believe in, in, in exposing the text to expository preaching or teaching. Really important. But it's purposeful here that that's not what home group is. It's not also a psychology therapy group. It is putting Christ at the center and trying to help each other make ways to encourage each other and be used by the Spirit in blessing and helping and provoking to love Christ more and to love others better. And finally, how? How do we encourage one another to love in good deeds? See, if we don't pay attention to this text in the actual words you can just go away oh that's good look we're doing really good in our social action and the crazy term today social justice and foods being provided to poor and all the stuff that christians are called to do and you could do that like many do who are unbelievers and don't believe in jesus don't believe in the christ of the book of hebrews don't believe he is a substitutionary atonement. And that's not what this writer is after. So look at the text. The key to encouraging each other to love in good deeds is verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That's it. Because he who promised is faithful encouraging one another, in other words, to hoping God is at the center of helping each other love others and do good works. We're desperate. I'm desperate. Every day. To be Christ-centered. 
and I'm desperate as a fellow believer in Jesus' church to be helped by you and you by others. That's what Hebrews has been all about in this book up to this point. He has so placarded Jesus, the high priest, the mediator, interceding for you now, believer. He is your eternal joy laid up in heaven. And then he says, now hope in God. Hold fast to that hope. That's the power source for our stirring each other up. Because if you don't have hope in God and you're not actively pursuing Him and holding on to that pole, what are you going to give to others? Without this hope in the Gospel, in the faithfulness of God's promises sustaining us day by day, the disappointments, the unexpected turns, and the pain of life will wreck you. And you'll be empty. And you'll have nothing to overflow to others. But we all get caught in that situation lower, and the body's meant to come, encourage, speak into, pray for. So, so, to the extent that I allow myself to be known over the years and to know, to have people come up and say, Joe, I don't know. Your heart seems to be getting kind of hard here. What's happening? Okay, here's a, here's a Scripture for you. Hope in God. Repent from that. I'm desperate for that. This text is speaking to us here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship. The message, the text, is clear. Our surviving and our thriving in our faith depends on Christians intentionally building each other up and stirring each other up to love in good works. Without the intentional faith-building togetherness of the life of the local church, we individuals will drift from God. And we will slowly become hardened. And we may shipwreck our so-called faith. Remember what this writer already said. It's how he says it in chapter 3. Just picture yourself for a minute. Here we are. This picture that we're in a group. We're supposed to be doing it. Okay, we're listening to the Word of God and this is what Jesus says to the writer. Take that, 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 it means be careful, be cautious. In other words, like a zebra out on an African plain. Don't be caught alone. Okay. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, failing to trust in God's promises, leading you to fall away from the living God. Careful. Now watch what he says. But, here, here's the antidote. But, exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. To be born again means to be thrust into a battle. Paul, at the end of his life, 
said it this way. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept, held on to the pole. I have kept the faith. He held fast. His confession. And one of the main means of grace that God gives us in the Bible. Means of grace. What do you mean? Communion is a means of grace as the church shares that. Your Bible, reading it, hearing it read is a means of grace. Praying is a means of grace. Preaching is a means of grace to the church. And one of the main means of grace in the Christian battle of this life is to meet together. Don't neglect it. Personal, exhorting, warning, comforting relationships with other believers. In Sunday morning preaching, it is really important, but it's not enough. The end of verse 25 says, start with verse, the beginning of it, we'll get to the end. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And then he says, and all the more as you see the day of Christ coming drawing near. He says the frequency and the seriousness of our meetings should increase as the day of Christ's coming judgment draws near. The stress, the troubles, they're going to increase as history comes to a close. Right now in America, the church is in a vastly different place than it was 20 years ago. 30 years ago. The tension between our very society and biblical Christianity, the church, that tension is getting really tight right now. When the popular idea about what marriage is and what is becoming and will inevitably become more and more legal, is saying we legalize as opposed to biblical Christianity on the so-called redefinition of marriage, which is an obliteration of what marriage is. It's a taste. This is how Jesus said it in chapter 24 of Matthew. In those end times, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased and even legalized, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So let's be intentional when we gather together. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. We meet together so that when we leave, we'll have more power to hope in God, which empowers us to better overflow with something, to love others and to do them good. And so we come to small groups not merely considering, well, do I need it? I wonder how I... Hmm, eh, I don't know if I need to get blessed tonight. But you come not forsaking and abandoning the others, but considering how you may be a means to encouragement in Christ and to bless the other. Then I don't like them and him and her. That person's a little difficult. Yeah. 
it might be a reflection more upon us than them. Come, Alex. So let us be diligent to obey this text to the glory of God as we hear it one more time. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, would You grace us here in sovereign grace? Lord, would You grace Your church in all its local expressions worldwide to take more seriously the exhortations of body, life, of the centrality of the Gospel of Christ, and that we take that vertical drawing near to You and lay it down horizontally upon one another to spur one another on in the faith, to uphold weary and weak arms with hearts of care and concern for our brother, for our sister in Christ. Without the work of your spirit.